Uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we are, um, Lord willing, uh, in the next to last sermon uh, in this series of 1 Peter. Uh, we'll, we'll do something different for Easter Sunday next week and then come back the week after uh, and finish 1 Peter. I think I mentioned a week or two ago I didn't, didn't expect we could finish before Easter, which would have made a, a natural break, but alas... Um, that's where we are. First uh, Peter chapter five, uh, beginning in verse one. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, I will ask you to stand as we read God's word together. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, not as, I mean, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, this is uh, the very word, yes, from Peter's pen, uh, but they are from the very mouth of God. And so we pray that we would hear believe, embrace, understand, uh, and be changed by this, your word, by your work in them and through them. And we ask all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I think I've mentioned a time or two, maybe a time or two too many um, in this series that um, our our conviction about uh, preaching through books of the Bible um, is is on full display right here uh, because this is one of those passages uh, you would skip uh, one of those pas- passages and perhaps even Ernie Bob and Blake would like for me to skip um, if we were just bouncing around uh, making things up as we go along uh, there is a phrase. A saying out there uh, that you know, um, and I've, I've, it's etched in my head, and I can't remember where, um, but they say that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, this passage is um, a passage about people in authority, at least predominantly about people and authority. That's not true for all of the verses we just read, but it's the majority of it um, is for people in authority, people in leadership positions within the church. And you can understand the dangers of having power and authority. Uh, That's not just true in the civil realm, believe it or not. That's actually true um, in the church as well. The reality is anytime you have people, you have sin problems. Um, and so uh, 
for that reason. It is with some, um, some fear and trepidation and caution uh, that we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, a passage that speaks uh, to the relationship between the leader and the led, um, quite honestly. Um, it sounds familiar if you've if you're reading along, I mean, maybe at the, the pace we're going, if, if you're not sort of keeping up, if you're not reading First Peter regularly, um, it sounds familiar. It has echoes. It has overtones of stuff he wrote earlier, like at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, when he dealt with um, different groups of people submitting to other groups of people. This has that kind of um, overtone to it as though he's kind of circled back around uh, to that topic again. And so some even contend that the whatever's gone in between is sort of a, an insertion and that this really should have followed right after husbands and wives at the beginning of 1 Peter 3, except for one word. It's the word so. You, you know how it is when you're talking, you're... You're telling stories, you're, you're recounting information, and then the conclusion starts with a so, or a therefore. It's, it's actually the Greek word therefore. And so this, and so that, based on everything that I've said so far, this is the conclusion. And that's where Peter is. He's, he's grounding this passage not so much on the submission stuff from chapters 2 and 3, but on the dangers, the, the reality of suffering and persecution that we as believers face. He's been talking about the very real chance of, of suffering, of persecution that these believers will have to face in their lifetime, the fiery trials, to use his language from chapter 4, verse 12. And it's in that context that he calls our attention to the elders in the congregation. Now, it's interesting because in verse 1, he uses elders, I think it's fairly clearly, as the office of elder because of the way he unpacks their duties in verses 2 and 3. But then when you look down at verse 6, he uses elders in a different way. Or verse 5, I think it is. Uh, yeah, verse 5. Uh, he uses elders in a different way. That's not so much the office. That's older people. Um, and he changes uh, the language. He changes the focus there in verse 5. There's no office of younger people. There's no office of you who are younger. And he changes his focus from the office in verse 1 to just older people generally in verse 5. But what do elders have to do with the dangers of persecution? Why would that make Peter think about? Why would writing about the threat of persecution make him think Oh, that's right. I probably ought to write something here about the elders in the local church. Notice in verse 1, 
Notice what Peter calls himself. Uh, He doesn't call himself the vicar of Christ. Uh, He doesn't call himself the bishop of Rome. Uh, He calls him. He doesn't even call himself an apostle. He did back in one one. So the 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 impetus or at least the authority to write the letter back in chapter one, verse one is his apostleship. Here, however, Peter takes a step down. Peter doesn't claim the apostle office. He actually takes a step down to what we might call the lesser of the two offices between apostle and elder. And Peter models the humility that elders, that the rest of the passage calls elders to have. He takes the lower office. Peter models what it means to set aside the authority that could so easily corrupt or even corrupt absolutely. And notice he says, I'm a, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Again, he could have said, look, I'm one of the three people that got to see the transfiguration. Like Peter, James, my brother, Andrew, you remember Andrew, right? My brother, he didn't get to see it. Like it was just three of us and only three of us. And we got, he could have claimed that he could have claimed that sort of, here's what makes me better and, and, and different and what separates me from everybody else. And he doesn't. I'm merely witness, a witness of the sufferings of, of Christ, which by implication, he suffered for us. He suffered to redeem us. There's already, just right off the bat in verse 1, there's already sort of evidence of the fact that godly leaders don't clamor for respect and power and authority. In fact, they frequently seek the lower place. They frequently will give up the honor and the glory to seek a lower place. The reality is, the office of elder isn't for the elder. The office of elder isn't for him. It's for the congregation and it's for Christ. It serves the people and it serves the king and head of the church, Jesus Christ. In fact, he even sort of points us to the fact that elders serve as shepherds until the chief shepherd, verse 4, should return. These congregations are likely to face persecution. They're likely to face suffering. And in light of that, the role of the office of elder becomes important because of their, their care for, their protection of Uh, for the flock to guard and protect them from the dangers out there all the while knowing that at some level you can't and all the while knowing that that persecution is real and is appointed by God even for our own sanctification these elders are called to give oversight to the flock verse 2 It's literally the word look over. It's the word that gives us episcopal. 
So the Episcopal Church, or in some of your versions, you'll be reading along and, and you'll find the word bishop. Uh, it's this word, overseer, overlooker, someone who literally looks over the congregation. It's an episcopos. And so these elders are called to shepherd the flock that is among them, exercising oversight, overlooking, uh, looking over, watching over the congregation. Of course, if the flock is among them, uh, you can't have absent elders. You can't have elders who frequently are absent when the flock gathers together, who make it their habit to be gone when the flock is gathered. We see a, a second sort of description of the, the, the work, the function of the elder, not under compulsion, but willingly. They're not being forced into the office. It's not uh, forced upon them. Uh, but they recognize the fact that they have been called by Christ to serve in this role. There's a, a willingness to serve in the office of elder. A third description of the function of the office of elder, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I, I don't know many elders shamefully gaining from the office of elder. And I've long thought it was an interesting contrast between shameful gain and eagerly. Those two things don't seem like opposites to me unless you realize that you're talking about, am I looking out for myself or am I looking out for other people? You know plenty of people who are really eager for their own Gain, But this sort of describes the fact, in fact, it describes the same thing that all of these contrasting pairs are, are, are giving you or showing you. It's the fact that um, the difference between greedy and eagerly um, is the person you're focused on. If you're seeking for greedy gain, you're, you're looking for yourself. If you're doing so eagerly, your eyes are on the people around you you're watching over the flock not for your own good but for theirs and then you see again another sort of contrasting pair that describes the the function of the office of elder in verse three not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock Again, a, a domineering leader, a domineering shepherd only cares about himself. And he's demanding his authority. He's demanding his rights. He's demanding his respect. He doesn't care about the flock. And instead, they serve as examples. They model humility. They model godly living. They model facing persecution and trusting in the power and rule of Christ in their lives. You know, there are men, there are churches that have men like that serving as elders. They've sort of clawed their way into office. They've clamored for authority and power. They've 
they've demanded their rights, uh, and, and they like to make sure everyone knows they are an elder. But this passage says, look, instead of lording over the congregation, instead model humility and godly living. And, you know, that's the theme through these first four verses. It, it, it completes a circle. Now, I realize Peter doesn't exactly make this connection, but I think it's too obvious not to make it. It begins with Peter's own humility and ends with the elders' humility. The theme of these four verses, the theme of the office and function of, of elder, is that we're not out for our own good. That an elder is not out for his own honor and glory. He puts others ahead of himself. Thankfully, that's not where Peter concludes the passage. Much like the earlier passages in chapter 2 and 3, he kind of focuses the camera, you know, sort of that... You watch this in movies sometimes when there's two people, somebody close to the camera, close to you as the viewer, and then somebody in the back. And all they do is adjust the focus. And, and where the person in front was in focus, now they're blurry. And the person in back is now the person in focus. And there's that same sort of way that Peter adjusts the camera lens just enough to take the focus off of elders and then to turn them on. Verse 5, younger people. Again, younger isn't an office. I don't think elder in verse 5 is intended to be the office of elder. I think this is supposed to reflect that generally speaking, younger people should be subject to older people. That younger people should recognize the, the, the wisdom gained from years of walking with Christ. The humility gained from years of walking with Christ. It's not a rule, but generally speaking, elders were older. Thankfully, we don't do that here. But generally speaking, the elders there were older. That was supposed to be kind of funny. Um, in fact, in first century Judaism, in the synagogue, they actually sat... According to age, the seat of honor was given to the older people. And so they arranged the seating in the synagogue according to age. Maybe there's something we can learn from that. Maybe there's something to be learned from the fact that we keep trying to turn back the hands of time, if I can quote Sticks. We keep trying to, to, to fight against the progress of time. We keep trying to argue that, that there's a, a point at which we, just, we take older people and we just push them to the periphery and, and we want to not be old, we want to be young. And so we're constantly searching for the fountain of youth. And, and if you're over a certain age, then, then we're just going to push you to the side and, and move on. You could reverse that, I suppose. There's a point at which... Just because you're older, you don't get to come to the church and go, I'm going to retire from everything I've done because I've done it long enough. And we need you then more than ever. 
maybe there's something to be gained from in the church from a recognition that older people who have walked with Christ have that many more years of sanctification ahead of us from which we could learn. If there's one character trait that belongs front and center in the church, Peter calls our attention to it in verses 1 through 7. And it's humility. It's a, a desire not to seek my own name, not to seek my own kingdom, not to seek my own glory, not to seek my own praise, but to serve others around me, to consider others better than myself, to say it the way Paul said it, which is essentially what Peter's saying here. Because notice, after urging the younger people to be subject to elders, he then focuses the camera lens once again, gives it just a twist, and brings everyone in focus. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. I don't know what your... Um, I don't want to know. I don't know what your normal morning morning wake up in the morning pattern is. I don't know what your you know what sort of your routine. We all have these routines. Uh, we don't need to know your routines. But sooner or later, and thankfully this is really really obvious to all of us. Sooner or later, you walk into your closet and you pick out clothes, and you you put them on. You put on a pant, some pair of pants. You put on a shirt. You put on a dress. You put. You literally go into your closet and you pick out something that you're going to wear that day and you put it on. That's the imagery that Peter uses right here. As you're getting dressed in the morning, when you go to your closet and you pick out your your pants and your shirt and your socks and your shoes, grab humility and put that on. As well, clothe yourself with humility. That's the language he's using in verse 5. It's intentional, it's active, it's daily, it's perpetual, it's necessary. Paul tells us that we've put on Christ. That as believers we, we put off the old and we put on Christ. And if Christ is gentle and humble as he says he is, should we not put on gentle and humble in heart as we put on Christ? You want a picture of humility? I mean it's, it's Palm Sunday. And and Jesus, the king of the universe, rides into Jerusalem not on a big giant muscular white stallion clothed in regal robes, but on a donkey. A picture of humility, even from our Savior, Jesus Christ. The danger of pride is that God opposes the proud. Or Peter's referring to the Proverbs here. And, and there in, in the Hebrew, in, in Proverbs, it says God mocks proud mockers. God will bring to nothing, nothing those who think that they are God. Those who seek their own honor 
and glory. We humble ourselves so that he may exalt us. We're called to humility and God gives grace to the humble. Not saving grace. That doesn't mean, we know this, right? Peter's already proven that he doesn't mean, well, if you would just humble yourself, then God will save you. He'll give you the saving grace you need to be saved. It's, you got to get the order right. He's writing to believers in that sort of part of the passage that are part of the letter that is written to us as believers in how we should live in response to the gospel we've already received. It's a recognition that everything we have, we have because God's given it to us. Everything we are, we are because God has made us that. For the elder, the, the gifts and graces of, of being an elder, to serve as an elder, come from God and not from Himself. For younger men, the gifts and graces to follow and watch and learn and, and study and gain from the benefit of those ahead of us reflects a recognition that we don't have it all together. Humility towards everyone admits the fact that we need each other. It's a reflection of the fact that the church is a body. And, and when your thumb doesn't work right, then, then the whole body suffers for it. We need each other. There's an illustration I think I've, I've used before. I hope it's been long enough that maybe you don't even remember it. Um, but uh, it, it reaches back to the early days of, um, of Kobe Bryant's NBA career. Um, and it may have been one of his first uh, NBA All-Star games. And Kobe was matched up against a guy. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name's uh, Michael Jordan. Um, pretty good basketball player. Uh, um, among the discussions of you know the greatest of all time, when when that list comes up, his name is usually on the list. Well, there's a a play in the middle of this NBA All Star game. Uh, Kobe has the ball. Michael Jordan is defending him, and Carl Malone comes over to set a screen on Michael Jordan. This is how Mark, Michael. This is how Carl Malone made all his money playing um, uh, playing basketball. This was his world. Um, and Kobe waved Carl Malone off. I don't need your help. I can take this guy by myself. Peter says we don't wave each other off. We don't look at each other and go, I don't need your help. We can do, I can do this by myself. The humility that he calls for in this passage is a humility to need each other. A humility to reflect that the church is a body and the whole body is under the head that is Christ and we should be humble enough to recognize our need, our dependence on one another. We don't wave others off in the Christian life. And that's really the aim of verse 6. We humble ourselves before God and rely on Him to deliver us from many dangers, toils, and snares. Again, as these 
believers are facing persecution as they're about to face suffering in their life, God alone can and will deliver them at the proper time. But he uses a word in verse 7, actually uses two words that um, are great, fascinating words. Uh, One is casting, you're facing persecution. You know suffering is coming. How would you feel? I mean, you talk about inducing anxiety. I want to face this persecution because Christ has said it would come. And I want to rely on Him. But I also kind of want to run away because fight or flight. I kind of want to punch this guy in the nose, but that may not be exactly what what facing persecution looks like for me as a believer. And and you're sort of torn. This anxiety that facing persecution is going to bring. A lot of you know I like to watch English Premier League soccer. Um, I don't have a team. I don't care who it is. I just like watching. So Saturday mornings, I'm usually watching Premier League soccer. And one of the things I love is you've got British announcers. And so they they use British lingo. And and a lot of times it's lingo we don't use, we don't have, we don't know. And and they will watch. And and a, a forward gets the ball and he's about to score and he could shoot or he could pass and he ends up doing neither. And inevitably, the announcer will say, I believe he was of two minds there. That's a great... I mean, we say we're confused, we don't understand. But of two minds, I mean, literally, he had one mind that said shoot and one mind that said pass because that guy's open and, and he really didn't do either. And so what he ended up doing was no help whatsoever. That's the same concept as this word anxiety. To have multiple minds, to have a lot of things going on in your head at once. We're anxious because we're of two minds or perhaps more than two minds. We want to run. We want to fight. We want to face it and and stand to honor Christ. And we want to run and preserve ourselves because it's so much easier to live by sight rather than by faith. And so we're anxious. What do you do when you're anxious? What do you do when you're of two minds or three minds or five minds as the case may be? You literally grab your burdens. You grab those anxieties and you cast them. Throw them. Hurl them onto God. And you know what? I'm going to give you permission to actually act it out. You get in that situation, and I mean, if it helps you to kind of go and like literally, you know, I'm casting my anxieties on him. I'm casting my burdens on him. Why? Because all these things that I care about, he doesn't. He does. But he doesn't care about those things. He cares for you. That's different. That's not the same thing as feeling overwhelmed by the things. That's, that's, that's I'm going to care for you in such a way that these things will be in my hands and that makes them, even if they're difficult, it makes them good. 
they're not too heavy for him. Your anxieties, your burdens, your troubles, your cares, they're not too heavy for him. They don't catch him off guard. He knows and he cares. He cares for you. And there's the humility of looking to God and saying, I can't. I'm not able. I'm not strong enough. I don't know enough. And for that matter, I'm not even supposed to. Here, God. You take them. You do with them as you see fit. For your glory and for my good. May God grant us the grace to be humble towards one another, to lean on Him because He cares for us. Let's pray. Our great God and our King, uh, we thank You that You know our cares, You know our concerns, You know our burdens, You know our need uh, for deliverance. And uh, You know and You love and You care for us. Uh, We pray that we uh, would be people who uh, can uh, eagerly, joyfully cast our anxieties to you and trust in you. And would you grant us the humility to love, to serve, to guard, to protect, to learn from, to care for one another, whether elders or younger people and older people that we would all reflect humility, dependence on one another, and dependence on you. To the honor and glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.